Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifesightNews.com. Today, I'm going to be doing an interview on pornography again. Now, those of you who are listening and saying, why are you doing another interview on pornography? The reason is that over the last two years, I've done interviews with uh, former porn performers. I've done interviews with former porn addicts. I've done interviews with experts in the porn industry who explain the connection between porn and violence. And although there's been a lot of, of helpful stuff in those interviews, especially with my uh, interview with Kristen Jensen of Protect Young Minds on how to talk to your kids about porn. So if that's something that you're wondering about, please do go check out that interview. A lot of people have said, look, in these interviews, there's always been some tips for how to quit porn, how to deal with porn, what happens if you're in a relationship with somebody uh, who looks at porn. Uh, but we want somebody who's an expert who can explain, how do we quit? What do I do if I'm dating somebody who looks at porn? Uh, what should I do if somebody asks me out and they do look at porn? How do I figure out if the person I'm in a relationship with looks at porn? And so for that, I turned to somebody that I've known for quite a few years now. I think I met him for the first time uh, when I was speaking at an anti-porn conference in Ottawa, but I'd known about him before then because he's actually treated a lot of friends of mine, and his name is uh, Paul Laverne, and he's got a, quite an extensive bio. Uh, he's going to tell us a little bit about his personal story here in a minute, but just to give you the cliff notes, he got his undergrad degree at York Ver University, and then he went on to obtain his Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology from Yorkville University. Uh, he's received training from the American Association of Sex Addiction Therapists and is currently, and this is significant, one of the only certified sexual recovery therapists. So you can find him at turningpoint4me, that's the number 4.com. And he has a fascinating insights into porn addiction, but most specifically, really practical tips on not only how to quit looking at porn, but again, answers to those practical questions that I mentioned earlier. And so just for those of you who are maybe struggling with porn, Maybe you're dating somebody who's struggling with porn or you're married to somebody who's struggling with porn and you want to sort of situate yourself, get an idea of what you should do, get an idea of why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. This podcast is really for you. Just as a warning... This is what they call not safe for work. Some of the discussions we're having are going to be quite blunt. Um, there's going to be things discussed, uh, which is sort of inescapable in a conversation about digital porn and sex addiction uh, that some of you might find uncomfortable. But just bear in mind the context of this discussion, which is specifically addressing uh, porn addiction and what we can do about it. So without further introduction from me, here's my conversation with Paul Laverne on porn addiction. So explain to uh, all of our listeners how you got involved in the in the in the porn business. I guess I should say how you got involved talking to people about this and why you think it's such a big deal. Like, how did you end up going from I presume a pretty normal person uh, to somebody who spends a lot of time talking about porn, which is a question I get all the time as well. Yeah, I joke with people uh, that I, I write out the words pornography and masturbation in more times in a day than anyone you've ever met. Right? <laughs> I, I have short forms because those are long words to write out and, uh, and I, I, I talk about it so much. But that's a great question, Jonathan. Um, so probably to give context, uh, it's important to state I'm, I'm a recovering compulsive porn user. So from my first exposure at age 10, up until um, 50, 30, age 37, I uh, used pornography compulsively. So I would have what you would call a porn addiction. 
and that would escalate at times into other sexual behaviors. So I've been uh, clean and sober now for 15 years and that's verified by a polygraph, by the way. I did a polygraph uh, in December of 2020 with Dave Robbins right. and he verified uh, my bottom lines of no porn, no masturbation, no lies or secrets and no inappropriate contact with women outside my relationship. And um, I actually have a copy right here which doesn't matter because I know we're just doing audio, but that's the polygraph. That's what it looks like. It's a bunch of numbers that I, I believe you really understand, but uh, there it is. So I, I went through that experience because I send a lot of my clients to him for polygraphs. Um, and I thought it would be good for me to be able to do it myself. But what happened, Jonathan, is in, in my journey toward recovery, a few things. One was I, I found it very difficult to get competent help in this area. And then this is going back 15 years. And that included the faith community, uh, which was um, pretty much useless as far as giving me help with this. And, and I'm not knocking the faith community. Many of your listeners are a part of that. And I'm, I'm not disparaging that. But the, the leadership uh, in the churches uh, are not equipped to, to deal with this issue and also even among trained counselors, whether they were secular or Christian therapists, uh, I didn't find a lot of competent help. And this is over a period of several years of trying various different people. So I realized that there is a huge need for this in the community, both in and outside of the faith community, and that it's unacceptable for someone that genuinely wants to change and get help to not find it. That's not okay. Right. So um, I had um, I had an experience about uh, ten years ago where I knew that I was going to be doing this kind of work, and I was in my therapist. I was seeing a therapist at the time, the first competent therapist that I ever found um, that explained to me that I was a porn addict, and I had an experience which was kind of weird. It was sort of. Um, I, I don't know, a kind of a spiritual experience, not to sound overly dramatic, but I remember sitting in the room and all of a sudden everything zoned out. Like it was like, it was like everything faded out around me. And, and I had this moment of absolute clarity that I would be doing something like this for the rest of my life. And there was nothing more important for me to be doing. And I left there knowing I would do this. I worked in construction at the time. I was building houses. Right. right? And uh, so to make a long story short, I went to school, got a master's degree. And then um, I thought, well, I need more, like I need more training and knowledge to be able to help people with compulsive sexual behaviors. And I came across Doug Weiss in Heart to Heart Counseling, who was, became my mentor and he started the American Association of Sex Addiction Therapists. So I got trained and qualified and supervised uh, for about a year under him. We had, we had phone calls every week and he, he mentored me. And then I, uh, I couldn't get a job interview anywhere. No one was interested in, I had a really weird resume, I think, you know, no one was really knew what to make of it and uh, I couldn't get an interview. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll make my own job. And I opened my practice at Turning Point Counseling. And that was uh, nine and a half years ago. And about 60% of my clients are people that struggle with compulsive sexual behaviors. And so that's what I'm doing now. 
So you and I have read a lot of the same uh, researchers. So we've both read a lot of the work of Dr. Marianne Layden on how pornography uh, desensitizes people to violence and then conditions them to perpetrate it or grooms them to accept it. We've both looked at Dr. John Fulbert's porn harms research. The uh, Witherspoon Institute has a phenomenal collection mm. of research called The Social Costs of Pornography. Um, and so maybe detail for our listeners, uh, those who haven't listened to previous episodes on the subject, um, how pornography conditions people to either perpetrate or accept violence. Uh, before we really get into um, the main discussion I want to have, which is your experience talking to people and how you talk people through it, because um, many listeners have requested that I do an episode with a therapist who talks to real people like them and walks through real world uh, problems. We've had on uh, Kristen Jensen from Protect Young Minds to talk about how to talk to yes. young kids and and porn proof your home, basically. But yeah, this is the first it. time. Yeah, this is the first time we've had somebody on who can basically tell answer some of the really practical questions. But I want to start by laying the foundation of of basically for for those of you who are listening uh, who are addicted to porn, and there are many of you. But those of you who are listening addicted to porn and don't care, I want to lay the foundation on why you should care and what it's doing to you. Yeah. Well, um, you mentioned John Fulbert, and uh, I'll just refer to some of his. Uh, he, he, so he's wrote a book called How Pornography Harms, What mm-hmm. Teens, Young Adults, Parents, and Pastors Need to Know. So for those that uh, aren't familiar with re- clinical research, uh, John did what's called a meta-analysis. So a meta-analysis is when a researcher studies the findings of many, many other researchers, and then he compiles them because there's only... To undertake a clinical trial or do research, it takes a lot of time and effort. So what a lot of people do is 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 compile the results of the other researchers. And uh, so um, anyone interested in going directly to the source of that can look him up at johnfulbert.com. And I would I would throw in Gary Wilson as well, your brain on porn. And I'd be grateful to have him on the show because he he probably has compiled the best database of research on that. But let, let's just go through some of the, some of the um, highlights of, of what uh, John Fulbert's put together in terms of violence. So uh, it, pornography routinely depict, depicts objectification and violence against women. Men's consumption of pornography impacts their views of women in the sense that they do objectify them more and are more accepting of the sexual mistreatment of women and more likely to make unwanted sexual advances. And porn is most likely to lead to sexual violence when the pornography is violent and when the individual has peer support for violence. And I could go on and on here, and this isn't opinion, okay? This is research. Uh, Sexual functioning. People who watch porn experience decreased levels of sexual satisfaction and have higher rates of erectile dysfunction. And I was, uh, oh, Gabe Deem. Uh, have you ever heard of Gabe Deem? He founded Reboot Nation. He's, uh, he's, been, on, he's been on the show before to talk about that. Yeah, so I, he's one of the guys that I interviewed uh, last fall. And um, basically he was um, consuming a lot of porn through his teenage years. And he reached a point where he was unable to achieve and maintain an erection. And he tells the story. He told me the story of, you know, being on this date with the girl of his dreams and he was really looking forward to, you know, ha- having sex and he couldn't function. 
And it, he's, he literally cried, like he was devastated about this because he didn't know about, he made, he didn't know about the connection between using porn and erectile dysfunction. But, you know, 10, 20 years ago, there was no one, Jonathan in their twenties that had erectile dysfunction. Like the odd person that had a, like an actual physiological condition, let's say, or, you know, problem with their circulation or blood pressure, that, but that was it. And that was very, very rare. And now it's becoming very common. Uh, and it's interesting that regular consumers of porn report lower levels of satisfaction with their sexual performance, lower self-esteem, more body image issues, and are less satisfied with their partners. Uh, let's look at the content for a second. So over the last 10 years, you have, uh, oh, and this is a study from Walter de Cassaretti, who I, who I mentioned as well as one of the guys I interviewed. Uh, the levels of violent porn, gore porn, child porn, and racist acts in porn have increased exponentially. Uh, one of the most common search terms, and this is anywhere from top three to top five, is teen porn. Okay, uh, Female performers in porn are likely to express pleasure or neutrality when aggression is being directed towards them. So what this does is normalize violent and degrading sex acts and condition young men's expectations. She, you know, so she's being slapped, choked, anally penetrated, and she seems to be liking it. So imagine you're 15 and you're watching this and you're just thinking, okay, I guess that's what girls like. Okay. Uh, what else? So mental health, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, uh, when you look at what's going on and what the conditioning is, what I get from a lot of people when I get presentations on this issue is they say, you know, um, makes sense. Well, when people hear the kind of research you just described, it does seem to make sense, right? It does make sense that if you watch this sort of thing, you would become at minimum desensitized to it and becoming desensitized uh, to, to women in pain, to watching this sort of thing is horrifying on its face. If you actually stop and thinking about it, right? Like desensitizing yeah. yourself to people undergoing the sorts of things that you just described are, is obviously a problem all by itself. Not to mention what I'd really like to talk to you about, which is a lot of people say, well, is this really happening in the broader culture among young people? So there's been a lot of, of recent studies. Uh, the Atlantic published a study last year that uh, talked about how 24% of adult American women now feel uh, fear during intimacy because they're afraid of spontaneous porn inspired choking or other behaviors like that. Like, like think about that, right? In a country of over 300 million people, 24% of adult women, like this is not a small number. Um, you know, 5% no. would be in, incredibly huge. Almost a quarter is, is just staggering and is the trickle-down effect of, of several decades now of digital porn use. So let's talk specifically about your work um, and the people that you've talked to. If you had to, uh, if you had to talk about the, the violence experienced by females and the men who find themselves attracted to violence and hate themselves for it, would you say that this is becoming increasingly common among the young people that you talk to in your practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find there's a there's a demarcation around age 30 with women I talk to. So women under age 30, uh, I've had several of them say to me, I don't know a guy that doesn't watch porn. So first of all, there's that. Right. So it's no longer the exception, it's the rule. Right. And then there's women that express how 
um, it seems the expectations that the partners have uh, in no way reflect uh, what they consider to be enjoyable, safe, or consensual sex. And I just read an, an article online yesterday about a lady on, uh, she's, she looks to be about her late 20s, and she's on a dating app, and guys are straight up asking her, are you okay with being slapped and choked? So, so this is before they've even met. So they're chatting with a guy on an app, and one of the first things he says before they meet is, are you okay with being slapped and choked? Right. So the, the expectations are so skewed by porn because, well, that's where it comes from. Um, I've had girls tell me that um, things like anal sex, guys ejaculating on them, ejaculating in their faces, choking. They have no interest in this because these things are degrading and yep. uncomfortable. And the guys seem to think that this is normal. So... Um, I, I don't I, I don't want to rush into shame or fault these guys because in a sense if that's all you've ever seen from age 14 to say 18 this is your education and this is what's normal to you then why do we expect them to believe anything else well one one thing to mention there because obviously I come at this from a Christian perspective and 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 there should be, so people should have an instinctual recognition of what's degrading and humiliating for one, right? There's just, there's, there's certain things that I can't quite get over in terms of the idea that somebody in pain is arousing should be problematic to anybody secular or religious. Like that just, that should sort of trigger something in your brain. Like, okay, that's, this is obviously dangerous. I shouldn't be physically attracted to somebody else experiencing pain. Like this is a subversion of my humanity and her humanity at a very fundamental base level. But then you take it a step further and you look at it from the Christian perspective as I do. And I've been to many of the same conferences you have. So I don't think you need to come at this from a Christian perspective to condemn it, as I just pointed out, but the fact, the thing that blows my mind is that people in Christian communities now are more or less behaving like people are everywhere else. I obviously don't get invited to public schools to talk about this subject, although I have given talks on some campuses and actually won the Marxists over on one campus, which was kind of fun. Um, Small feet. Yeah, well, I used the term rape culture, and suddenly they were very understanding of my perspective. So it's just about the right language, and we can all actually uh, find something to agree with on, on, on this subject. But what, what, what is crazy to me is everything you've just described, like Christians traditionally always understood certain sexual behaviors as off limits. Everything that you just mentioned would have been considered off off limits by Christians for, you know, all of human history prior to the last couple of, of decades, of which, you know, very little good has actually happened. Even the Me Too movement, which I'm supportive of, was more or less a response to the tearing down of sexual barriers, and then a belated attempt to slam the door after the horse had left the barn. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, porn had a lot to do with that too, of course. But how do you explain the fact that even, even most Christian kids now see this sort of sexual behavior as normal, or does it have something to do with the fact that, as you pointed out, when you wanted help, you couldn't find it? And so the fact that this is their only sexual education points to a massive glaring gap. Like they didn't have any, they, their dad didn't tell them what healthy sexuality and healthy relationships looked like. Because I, I speak in Christian schools and the stuff you're describing is more or less normal. I had a 13 year old at one Christian school in Toronto basically say her boyfriend was asking her um, for, for, for anal sex. And so. Yeah. 
like this is this is normal everywhere. This isn't a secular problem. Like we yeah. used to be able to make this delineation, right? And Christians could feel comfy that things weren't going on in their churches. But I know you have a lot of Christian clients too. What can you tell us about how prevalent it's become in faith communities? Um, okay, so I'll come back to that. But there's two things, um, two points I want to make because uh, because you you said a lot there. So I'll come back to that or remind me if I forget. Okay, but you mentioned something about. Um, you know, how can we, we should instinctively know that some of these things are wrong. And I agree with you. And, and I don't think it matters if you come from a faith background or you're Christian, you know, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist or whatever, um, hurting other people in the act of sex, uh, we, we should know is not something that we should be doing. But I'll, I'll explain why, why that doesn't matter. Okay. And it, it has to do with your brain. So pornography represents a supernormal stimulus. And it's a stimulus that doesn't exist in the real world and our brains aren't really created or evolved to deal with, whatever, whatever you believe about that. So what happens is the reward center of your brain called the limbic brain mediates pleasure and its job is to keep you alive. And so that's why it, it, um, it, it uh, handles the reward from food and from sex. The prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain that says, this is in confliction with my Christian values. This is morally wrong, okay? So what happens is that people that are watching pornography are not in the mental state that you and I are in right now. We're not in an altered state, Jonathan. We're in a grounded, rational level state. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't know about you, I'm pretty calm and relaxed and we're just having a great conversation and I'm in the moment. But when people are masturbating to the object world of fantasy sex, it's very important to realize that there's a massive neurochemical change that has happened in their brain. And in therapists call that the altered state, the bubble, the trance. And this is why pornography is addictive because it creates this altered state. If it didn't create an altered state, no one would be addicted to it, right? And it, 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 it's mediated through the same neural pathways that you use when you snort cocaine. Think about this. Snort cocaine, take meth, drink alcohol, or go to the casino and, and uh, if you're gambling on it. It's the same part of your brain, okay? So you go into this world and it's important to understand tolerance and escalation in the context of what you just said, because this speaks to the, how do I look at stuff that I know is morally wrong, okay? So it starts with the vanilla stuff, just women or a guy, girl having sex and they're smiling and happy or so you tell yourself. But over time you get desensitized to this level of stimulation. The dopamine receptors in your brain become dulled and you need more. So now we have, and Gabe talks about this, we need to bring new emotions into the experience like disgust, surprise, okay? And this is how we get into, you know, the, the Bible-believing, faithful Christian, upstanding guy goes to church every Sunday watching rape porn. How does that happen? Because he's probably been doing this for quite a long period of time. His addiction has escalated to where he needs more extreme material. And now he's introduced other things like disgust. 
And disgust is an interesting emotion because it attracts and repels at the same time. So if you don't believe me, just think about the last time you drove by a car accident at the side of the road, and I bet you couldn't stop yourself from rubbernecking around to see if you could, what, see some mutilated body on the side of the road? I don't know, but we've all done it. Well, feeling guilty that you're a voyeuring on a tragedy that you shouldn't be looking at. Right. But you, you're, right. you're looking anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone relates to that. Like no one that I've ever talked to has said, no, I don't do that. They all relate to that. They have fatal attractions. So the reward system of your brain is hijacked. Yeah. So it's hijacked by the supernormal stimulus that takes you into a world that you would never normally go. When you come out of this, you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is completely against everything I believe in. And this is why there's so much guilt and shame. And Christians have it work like they have more guilt and shame than than the non-Christians I've worked with. Right. Now, many of the girls I've talked to, and the thing that, that, that sort of shocks me the most is how young they're getting uh, is, is, as we talked about, guys wanting to act out the behavior they've seen in porn. So maybe explain this for our listeners. So it makes sense when you're talking about, you know, like, like that trance, when you're in the bubble, when you're doing something and you got to get carried away. Um, but when people are in the moment and they're planning for a relationship, like you mentioned on online dating, they're in a very calm state of mind requesting this sort of behavior in the sexual experience. So even when they're, you know, outside of that moment, they're still recognizing that this is the thing that I'm attracted to now. This is the thing that, you know, bluntly speaking, gets me off. And so this is what I want. Um, And so I guess two questions. The first would be, how frequently do men want to act out what they see in porn? Like if you've got a girl asking you, um, um, I'm dating a guy or I want to date a guy or I might end up dating a guy who's watched porn for X number of years. They're watching the sort of thing you've described, which, you know, weren't, wasn't mainstream 10 years ago, but now is, is sort of north. The Overton window has shifted. It's the new normal. What are the chances that this guy is going to want to pursue behavior like that in the relationship? And then secondarily, if I don't want to do that, what are the chances that the vanilla stuff, as you put it, is going to satisfy him? Yeah, so it's hard to answer that really quantitatively because the studies, like without really getting deep into it, they'll, they'll use words like more likely to or more susceptible to or, you know, those, that kind of language, right? So there's a lot of factors to take in. Like your question is how likely are guys to act that out? So, so let's look at that for a second. So the problem with kids and teens accessing porn is um, and that becoming their education and that becoming what they consider to be normal is the reason why they're asking girls for oral sex on the first date or slapping or choking. And the answer is we, we, and I mean society, needs to give context to what they're seeing. So when I talk to my sons, I have two sons, I didn't have a lot of long drawn out conversations with them, but I made sure that I made some key points. So look, I know you're going to see porn. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I want you to understand that porn objectifies women and treats them as less than human. So if I don't say that, Jonathan, they may never hear those words spoken to them about pornography. 
I want you to understand that some of those women are actually coerced or forced into doing what they're, what they're doing and are being harmed. They may smile at the camera because when they break down and cry or throw up between takes, that's edited out. We don't want to pop the bubble. So we edit that out and we just have the happy fake smiling face. But I want you to understand that. So that's the second thing I want to understand. And third, this is like a drug on your brain and you can develop a crippling addiction that will escalate until you watch things that you yourself are disgusted by. So, so that's just three quick points. It took me 30 seconds. And every parent needs to be having that conversation with their child. So now they have context. Well, and let's throw in one relevant to what you said. The things that you see in pornography are the fantasies of the pornographers and are meant to be extreme on purpose because that's more arousing. And when you start dating girls, don't expect them to wanna to do spanking, choking, gagging, anal sex, or ejaculating on their face because in the real world, that's disgusting. So, so, so there you go. We just address those things in you know three or four clear and simple statements, but we're not doing this because parents and, well, first of all, let's just stop putting the responsibility on the schools. I mean, the sex education curriculum under the liberals was a complete disaster and the, the conservatives somewhat improved it, I think. But um, I actually, I just got sent the sex, the sex ed curriculum by a client yesterday who's trained to become a teacher and they do not discuss porn. The dangers of porn or the harms of porn. So we, we, meaning parents, our society, our faith communities, need to be doing this to give context to what people are seeing. So they can, because a lot of people will just, if they hear that, they'll figure it out. So I want to look at this from the guy's perspective and from the girl's perspective. I've gotten emails from guys who say, I've been looking at porn since I was nine or 10. So mm -hmm. you can empathize with the experience. And you know, I'm 17, 18. I want to ask a girl out and I can't even look at a girl now without objectifying her um my brain is basically clogged with porn i think is the way one email put it and mm -hmm. i don't know how i can get to a state where i can actually um be attracted to normal sexuality um like even the term vanilla when you think about it it seems pejorative almost um but when what you're describing is is sort of like the healthy norm so what do you say to a kid who spent five six seven eight nine ten years uh, maybe more since, you know, everybody under 30 is especially affected at this stage. And a lot of people got a good, you know, decade and a half under their belts already. Um, how is there a chance for them to reset to the point uh, that they actually are attracted to normal, healthy sexuality, a normal, healthy girl where they don't want to pursue those activities or are they sort of saddled with the millions of hours of sewage they've pumped into their brains and are basically going to just have to figure out how to navigate around that, come up with coping mechanisms. Like what does the future look like for somebody who's let's just say has 10 years of this garbage under their belt and has been, you know, weaned on all the, the garbage you just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a great question. Um, so uh, sorry, I just had something. Oh no, I just had something pop up here. Uh, let me get rid of that. We can always edit this out later, right? Uh, yeah, great question. So, um, someone that's been watching 
hardcore online pornography for several years and I've had clients, I had a 24 year old guy and I think he logged 8,000 hours by the time I met him. Okay. So thank God for neuroplasticity. Okay. Because what I mean by that is that your brain can change the literally the neural pathways of your brain can be rewired and but what you need is a reboot. Okay. And so there's, there's a lot of sort of grassroots movements like NoFap and, and while Gabe started Reboot Nation with the purpose of helping guys to reboot. So, so for those that don't know, uh, Reboot is a period of time. We start with 30 days and we call it no PMO, no porn, no masturbation, no orgasm. So even if you're in a relationship and you're having sex, no, no orgasm. Okay. And the reason for this is your brain is so hyper stimulated by supernormal stimulus that it's, it's like vibrating at a higher level than it's supposed to be. And you need to detox. So you need a brain detox. You need a spiritual, mental, psychological, and neurological detox from this. So, so, so now this gets interesting because we're coming down to the nitty gritty, which is access. So guess how everyone watches porn these days, Jonathan? Yes. Right. Like I would assume. Yeah. Right. Cause yeah. Um, I was, like, I guess like, look, I smoke cigarettes. So if, if, if people are addicted to porn, like they're addicted to cigarettes, um, I don't know. I, I would want to smoke. I usually wanted a cigarette five times a day, roughly. Okay. But I assume it's somewhat different. So at least once a day. Okay. So I'll talk about pairing. Okay. Cause this is critical to rebooting. So pairing means that um, anything you've ever done that brings a reward, your brain is locked in the sights, sounds, smells, objects, and locations that came before it and that came after it, okay? So that's why when you drive by the Mandarin restaurant, you can literally see in your mind the buffet, the food, what it looks like. Imagine taking a bite and going down your throat and how good it tastes and how full you're gonna feel after, am I right? And that's just driving by looking at the sign. Why? Because your brain has paired the sign with the stimulus and the reward. Right. So people can't see me, but I'm holding out my cell phone right mm -hmm. now. This is called the black rectangle. Yeah. Okay? So for all these young kids, they've had their parents ignorantly, but well-intentionally gave them a black rectangle when they were nine years old with no filter and full data. Okay. So you might as well just say, here you go. Good luck. You'll probably be addicted to porn in a year or two, but you know, here's your phone. Okay. And um, parents that are listening, if you have young kids, I hope that you take uh, preventative measures. Well, first of all, they don't need a phone until they're in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, my two boys didn't get a phone to high school and they never had data. Yes. I'll repeat that. They never had a data plan. Why? You don't need it. Yep. social media there's no need for it okay but the thing is that i talk to guys all the time jonathan they their brain has paired sexual reward with the black rectangle so often they cannot be alone in a room with a cell phone and not watch pornography i want to say that again they cannot be alone in a room with a cell phone and not act out like i want people to understand this Think of the worst alcoholic you ever knew 
and how, you know, you would never leave that person alone in your house with a big bottle of Jameson whiskey sitting on the table in front of them, would you? Right. That's exactly what's going on. Okay. So I, with a lot of guys that have a longstanding history of battling this, I'm very adamant right at the beginning, we're going to deal with the access. Okay. And that means you're going to dumb your phone down. You're going to put filters on it, or you're going to get a flip phone. And if you don't want to do that, let's not waste your money and my time because the pairing. So, so remember I talked about that altered state before. Yep. Yep. So what happens is you're alone in the room and your brain pairs that as opportunity, black rectangle. I go into what's called anticipatory excitement, which is part of the addiction cycle. And my dopamine levels shoot through the roof. And this is all in 30 seconds. And I'm in an altered state already as my trembling hands fumble for my cell phone and I go on Pornhub. And it happens that fast, right? And I don't know, I've never smoked cigarettes, so I, I don't know how fast the, the Nick Fit can take you over, but I do know that it would be insane for you to, to carry a pack of cigarettes in your coat pocket while trying to quit smoking. Am yeah. I right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's yeah that would be absurd. Yep. Like it would be absurd, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I wouldn't be able to know if I had a pack with me. I, yeah, I would absolutely be having one. Yeah, no doubt about it. Right. And then you look at, you pull the pack out. And while you're thinking, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, your dopamine shoots through the roof because anticipatory excitement kicks in. And you almost wouldn't even know how it got in your mouth and lit, but it, there it is. Yeah. There it is. And you're puffing away at it. And that's what it's like for these guys, right? So, oh my gosh, man, we have crossed to a whole other level. Like when we're talking about millions of people that can't be alone with a cell phone without and looking at pornography, we them. have a major problem. Yeah. So, I don't know if I'm answering your questions there. I'm kind of all over the place. But. Yeah, no, this is all good stuff, though, because it's important for people to recognize because, like, I hate, I have a smartphone. I hate it. Um, I know I don't. <laughs> Well, I don't look at porn on my cell phone. I'm not addicted to porn on my cell phone and or any of that. Never have. But I'm addicted to other stuff on my like I have a hard time staying with the news cycle, for example, especially yeah. um, you know, the last the last 15 months or so. Yeah. <laughs> Took it from a from, from a habit that I kept an eye on to just a full-blown addiction. Well, and, with and your job too, you you have to keep up to date with your job on this stuff too. I mean, totally true. But if I if I imagine if I imagine like you know, it's hard enough for people not to get addicted to their phones when they're not looking at porn. Now you throw porn into that, and it does seem borderline insurmountable, especially because like so I was I was born in 1988, so I can still remember just barely when like smartphones weren't a normal thing at all. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of crazy to me that everybody now just thinks like, how can we do it without them? I'm like, I'm 32 and I remember what it was like to do without them. But yeah. everybody else is like, no, impossible. I'm like maybe life wouldn't be as crappy if you know you weren't yeah. on your phone all the time. Like everybody, everybody talks nonstop about how unhealthy they are and how social media is making everybody depressed and everybody's addicted and you're missing real life because you're looking at it through a screen and everybody's addicted to porn, but we can't do without it because yeah. then we might live like life in real amongst other humans and, and not, and not, you know, have our life pour into the black rectangle. But what are the, like what you're saying to me both strikes me as, as very accurate based on my very limited experience in talking to people, but also 
makes it more difficult because it's one thing to kick the porn habit, but I, I can hear a thousand guys listening to the show saying, okay, so when are we going to get to the part where I can quit porn and not get rid of my phone? Right. So, so I'll, yeah, I'm simplifying things for the purpose of our discussion, but let's say you are, you work as a salesperson and you literally need to email and text clients throughout the entire day or something like legit. Okay. Get a filter. So get a filter like Covenant Eyes that blocks and reports to accountability person. So if we're getting into the part about how to quit porn, let, let me let me give a hopeful note, okay? I help people all the time with this, all right? I'm 15 years sober. I, I, I think it's vile and evil. I have no desire to watch it. Now, having said that, if you, if you throw sexual images in front of my eyes, my limbic brain will be activated and secrete dopamine and I'll be aroused because I'm a heterosexual guy, okay? So I never let myself get in that position. And there's just so many things in, 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 the, um, um, in the way that it's not an answer to me. It's not, a, it's not an answer to me for any problem that I might have. Um, and and I, I know enough about the industry and like yourself, you've talked to survivors, you've talked to people in the industry, and you know how vile and dark and evil and disgusting yeah. it is. But the conversation about, you know, can we quit? Sure you can. Is it going to be hard? You betcha. Will it be maybe the hardest thing you ever did? Probably. But you need to deal with the access. So if you can't get a flip phone or get rid of your phone, I understand, okay? So that's legitimate. So you're going to put filters on. You're going to get rid of some of the social media. Let's go 30 days without Instagram. Let's start with that, okay? It's not going to kill you. And because and people need the experience, of going without it. Like I remember once I'm like scrolling through Facebook while, you know, I'm in my car and I'm like, this is insane. Like, what am I doing? Like I'm gonna crash, right? So I deleted the app off my phone. And you know how long I missed it for, Jonathan? Like a day. And then I didn't even think about it, right? Because when, when you don't see it, you don't think about it, so right. you don't miss it. Right. So, so, so it's like, okay, let's start where you're at. What can we do? We need to address the access. So that's the first thing. So whether it's dumb the phone down or get rid of it or a flip phone or put a filter on, you need to do something. And then I get them to follow common sense rules that I call boundaries. You need boundaries around the black rectangle. For example, what time at night do you shut it off? Pick a time, 10 o'clock, nine o'clock, you, you know, you don't need to be attached at the hip to your black rectangle. So let's say 10 o'clock. Okay, so 10 o'clock, it's shut off. Powered down in a drawer, closed, charging, out of sight. Just remember, the, the pairing is visual too. So if the brain doesn't see it, it won't produce a craving for a sexual reward, right? Uh, how about you don't go on your phone if your wife's in bed already? Like stuff like that, mm -hmm. like just common sense stuff. But you need a plan. It yeah. can't be haphazard. No one recovered haphazardly by random. Just like <laughs> when you quit smoking, you had some kind of plan to quit smoking. Like, number one, don't buy cigarettes. But then it was, you know, I don't know what you did. Patch, gum, spray, eat sunflower seeds, do push-ups when I have a craving, talk like, I don't know. But you had yeah. something, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and um, get help. 
you know, talk to me. I'm, you'll have my information. I'm sure on the, on the information, you'll send me an email, call me, uh, you know, uh, I'll have a chat with you, but you need a, a therapist or a coach for a lot of people. You need professional help. And they need to be trained in this. They need to be a CSAT or an AASAT, which is what I am, and accountability. So I want right. I wanted to ask you this because one of the toughest things to yeah. people who are addicted is a lot of people, because I give talks about it and very few people want to talk about it. So I naturally became the depository for a lot of emails and, and, and confessional discussions, et cetera. And one of the things I would point out to them is like, look, like one, I can't be your accountability partner because I don't like, we're not friends. So I can only be accountability partner for, for somebody I'm actually close to. And like, you know, I'm doing life with, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. otherwise it makes no sense whatsoever. But secondarily, like I'm not a professional. I know a lot of information. Um, I can, I can delineate the problem very effectively and I can explain it very effectively, but I'm not a therapist. And there's a reason they go to school for as long as they do. Uh, it's because you have to learn a lot of stuff. And so, both you know, like especially guys, um, especially in Christian communities, have a huge aversion to therapy and a huge aversion to, to getting help. So, at what point should a guy trying to quit porn realize that he can't do it by himself? Because I've I, I do know some guys who've done it by themselves. Uh, I do know some, and then I know a whole bunch who had to do um, joint marriage counseling. Uh, and then I know a whole bunch of guys who just sort of slump in and out of it and have been doing it for years. Um, because they won't actually go and get the help. So uh, what, what is the, the, the key indicator that you need professional help for this? Okay, so you bring up a good point. And a lot of people, the majority actually of people that change, so I'm using change in a broad sense, and I'm not speaking specifically to porn, but let's say quit smoking. The majority of people that quit smoking actually don't ever get help or therapy or see anyone. They just do it. Now there's right. more AIDS now, like there's the gum and the spray and the patch and all of that. But at the end of the day, most people, even before those things came out, just quit. Yeah. Right? I would interject. I would just interject there because this will be well, probably part of your answer, but I've always thought that the difference between, you know, cigarettes and alcohol and all that is like, these are, these are tastes you get acclimatized to. They're things you generally don't like the first time. And they're not like part of your fundamental human makeup, like sex is. Yeah. And so trying to quit porn, like porn is touching, you know, like part of like who you are in, in a way that cigarettes aren't right. Yeah. Like, like you just said that if you saw porn, <clears throat> your brain would respond to it right away because you're a heterosexual male. But if somebody who hasn't smoked for 10 years, say, takes a drag of a cigarette, they're going to cough and they like, well, why did I ever do this? This is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, Whereas yeah. the same, same thing with somebody, an alcoholic who hasn't touched a drop of whiskey in, in you know, 10 years and then drinks is like, actually like I've lost the taste. This is gross. Whereas yeah. the guy is never not going to think porn is arousing. Do you know what I mean? So that there's, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why porn is so much harder to kick. Yeah. Well, you make a good point because there's people that have quit drugs and there's there's people that have quit like cocaine and sex addiction and, and or alcohol and sex addiction. And the consensus from the literature is sex addiction is the hardest. And it's a it's an issue that and I, I will go back to answer your question, like mm -hmm. how, when to when to get help. But just to address that, um, there's an element to this that's different from other addictions. Like if you're an alcoholic, it's like not to oversimplify, but don't go to a bar and don't bring it in the house. 90% clear. Yeah. 90, that'll take care of 90%. There'll be the odd commercial or you're watching a show where they're drinking shots and, and it'll trigger you. Okay. But you, you can avoid 
almost all the triggers, right? Don't hang out like, you know, don't, don't hang out with all your drinking buddies and uh, they're all drinking while you have water. Like some people can actually do that, but at the beginning, that's a bad idea. But we're talking about our sexuality. So it's an innate part of who we are. And this is a conversation I have with clients. Like, Paul, what do I do? Like for the rest of my life, like there's like, if I'm a guy or there's always going to be attractive women out there, there's always going to be opportunity out there. And I'm like, okay, so do you want to be, um, do you want to be the master of your sexuality or do you want to be the slave to your sexuality? Because accepting that this is a fundamental, powerful drive in your being requires a response from you. And it requires an intentional, deliberate response to move toward mastery over your desires. So this gets a little bit existential or philosophical, but are we just animals driven by instincts? I like to say no, because we have consciousness and we have a moral, uh, well, a conscious, a conscience mm -hmm. and consciousness. So let's go with the theory that we can achieve mastery over our, let's call them baser desires and that this is the goal that we should strive for, whatever that looks like. And I was just talking to a client today, a young guy, he's late 20s. And we're talking about this. And he says, I really like that idea of self-control, like mm -hmm. mastering myself. And I was quoting him a proverb. Uh, he's a Catholic, but just kind of a lax Catholic. Like he doesn't really go to church. But I said in Proverbs that he that rules over himself is greater than he who rules over a city. Mm -hmm. Greater. And one of the greatest challenges is the challenge of self-mastery. A lot of guys resonate with this. So do you really want to be so pathetic that every time you see a girl with big boots, you got to run to the nearest washroom and jack off? Is that really who you want to be? I don't think that's the guy you want to be. Sorry, I'm being blunt. This is the reality, right? So, so that starts to, and I'm not shame. Hey, listen, no shame and blame for me here. I'm just being blunt about this, right? Well, they're shaming somebody and then there's grabbing them by the shoulders and shaking them really hard. And there's, it's a very fine line between the two of them, because I find actually, depending on how you use the word shame, um, that like talking to females about porn is different than talking to males about porn. Like when I like grow up, that's not being a man, like seriously, like you can not so much shaming, but it's kind of like a good hard whack over the head. Um, yeah. I heard one, one guy put it really well when he said in, in addressing these uh, like delicate sexual issues, uh, girls are like fine shine and men are like thermoses and thermoses. You can bang around a whole bunch and they won't break. Right. Um, and, and, and I, I found that in, 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 like, I remember talking to one of my friends and, you know, he was kind of being sort of whiny out partway through the conversation, like feeling sorry for himself that, you know, he was arousing himself to the sight of girls in pain. And it's sort of like, just grow up, dude. Like really, man, like you're better than this. Um, and if you're not, you know, you need to start being better than this. And yeah. he kind of was sort of like shocked because we, you know, people are used to, you know, talking endlessly about their problems and having somebody feel sorry for them where it's like, no, that's not going to be helpful. You can get through this. I know you can get through this. So let's, let's get over this part and get to the part where we start creating workable solutions. Yeah. Well, there, there's, um, there was this guy in Toronto as a personal trainer and his, his motto was I'm the iron hand in the velvet glove. And I always <laughs> like, I was, I was printed on his business card. So, so maybe I, maybe I subconsciously adopted that because that, that's kind of my approach. 
I'm like, hey, dude, if you want to jock off to porn for the rest of your life and ruin your relationships and be so burdened down with guilt, shame, lies, and secrets that your life eventually, you know, explodes into a complete train wreck, have at her, man. Go for it. You can get there in record time now. Like it used to take 10 years, 20 years in the past, just looking at magazines. Well, crap, you can do that in good year, year and a half. Yeah. With online porn, you yeah. know. But if that's not the kind of guy you want to be, if it is great, have a great life. If that's not the kind of guy you want to be, here's how you can change. You know, and I'll, I'll, I can show you a path that I walked and many others have, and I know it works, but I, I can't do it for you. You got to walk it, right? You got to walk that path. But it's like what it is, Jonathan, is identity goals versus outcome goals. You know, so an outcome goal is stop looking at porn. An identity goal is what kind of man doesn't need porn? Right. I want to be that man. I want to right. be that man, right? That, that, that I don't look to that as an answer. So anyways, well, where were we? we? Yeah, the last subject I wanted to you know, because we, we covered the, the guy section. The last question I want to co- I cover, because I want to make sure people get this part, is I, I have this question a, a shockingly large amount. Okay. Um, I had people pull me aside and ask me this, and that's, I'm sure you have this too, is girls wanting to know when it's safe to date a guy. So if we're talking about the guy who's looked at porn for 10 years and has been clean, you know, for a week, if we're talking about the guy who quit, you know, a year ago, if we're talking about a guy who hasn't quit yet, but says, just date me and I will quit. Like what would some general advice that you would give um, to, to girls and then what are some signs that they can have and, I, and we know these are generalities and you know you're, the reason you're a therapist is that every situation is personally specific um, but some general guidelines as well like how can you tell a guy is serious like if you won't get rid of his phone um, for yeah. example is, 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 is one key warning sign that I always see what's some advice you would give to female listeners on this yeah yeah okay well and, and I just want to tie jump real quick to to a, I didn't quite answer an earlier question is when to get professional help is repeated failed attempts let's just right. go with that repeated failed attempts and escalating negative consequences right then you get professional help and most guys don't come to my office till they've got caught by their wife and their marriage is on the rocks and that's what gets them in the door so please don't wait for that to happen if it has happened i'm here for you to help you but please i implore you not to wait until that happens okay so back to what you just said about mm-hmm. the girls so, okay, so I, I tell girls, when you're dating a guy, don't ask him if he watches porn, because he'll lie to you. Say, would you like to watch porn together sometime? So if he watches porn already, he'll be thrilled to hear that you want to watch it too, and he will enthusiastically agree that the two of you can watch it together. So now you have your answer. So... You know, you do with this what you want. Like, this is kind of a hypothetical, right? Mm-hmm. Just giving people ways to think about this, okay? Because if you just say to a guy, you watch porn, you'll probably lie. Having said that, you absolutely should be asking a guy that you're dating that it's getting serious what his views are on, um, what his views on pornography are. And that's not enough. How much porn do you watch? Right. I, I wouldn't even say, do you? I just say, how much porn do you watch? Right. Okay. So let's say there's a lot of different scenarios. I don't watch porn. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. 
So if he seems genuinely trustworthy in other areas of your life and you believe him and your vibe, the vibe is, you know, good and you believe he's telling you the truth, he looks in the eye and he tells you the truth, give him the benefit of the doubt until you see otherwise, right? If he says, um, I've struggled with it off and on over the years, you need to get more information. Like when I have clients that come in, I'm basically in the first or second session, I'm like, how often do you watch porn? When did it start? How many times a week? How often each time? So I know, like I watch porn four to five times a week for 10 to 15 minutes each time. Or I watch porn three times a day and masturbate three times a day to pornography. Okay, so that that's, that's different, two different things, but it's specific. I'm really big on believer in clarity. You should have clarity on that, okay? If he says to you, I used to watch a lot of porn, but I haven't in, you know, maybe six months. I would ask them, what is it that you're doing? Um, like, I want to know what the system is. I call it the system. So what system do you have in place? Like, I could ask you, like, what you do to maintain your sobriety from cigarettes. And I don't know what it is, but you could tell me at least two or three things that you, maybe it's your self-talk. Maybe it's, I don't know. I just never, if someone lights one up, I leave the room or like, I don't know, but, or maybe you have someone you talk to when you're craving, but you'll have a system in place because yep. you obviously maintain it for quite a while. Right. So I'd, I'd say, ask the guy, what kind of system does he have in place? Does he have filtering software? Does he go to a support group? Does he have accountability? Has he seen a therapist? And if the answer is like, no, 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 to all of the above, then I would be a little skeptical of one, has he really quit? And two, how long is he going to maintain that? Okay, so let's talk about how long he's been sober. Mm -hmm. A week is nothing. Any 30 days is anyone can do anything for 30 days. That's meaningless. Right. Okay. You want to hear six months or longer. Like if you're moving forward in a serious dating relationship, the guy needs to be so, I mean, this is my opinion, but it's yep. my clinical opinion, professional mm -hmm. opinion. Uh, he needs to be sober at least six months because that's, that's something like mm -hmm. that's an accomplishment. That's not nothing. Right. right. Even three months isn't enough. Okay. Because, uh, well, it just isn't, but six months is something. Okay. So optimistically move forward and, establish uh, in your relationship a way to have a conversation about this because here's the number one thing that devastates partners. It's not the porn, Jonathan. It's the lying. So establish early. Look, first of all, if you're a girl listening to this, I challenge you to have a zero tolerance for porn stance going into your relationships. And uh, maybe you've never met a guy that doesn't watch porn and you've given up hope of ever finding one. So please hang in there because they're out there. Okay. Or there's guys that have used it, but it's really not an addiction or a problem. This is why you have to have a conversation, a further conversation with him to understand the context to it, but set the bar as I don't share porn. Um, I don't share my boyfriend or my husband with, 10,000 other naked women. Sorry, I'm not doing that. No porn, right? But but establish a relationship where you can say, hey, look, I'm not okay with porn, 
but I also realized that even when you have a plan in place that sometimes guys make mistakes, bad choices, slip up, whatever, please tell me, I want you to come and tell me so that we can talk about it. And, and I've seen this, you know, I've seen couples that boyfriend, girlfriend, Christian, non-Christian, they have an open relationship, you know, and if he slips up, he goes to her and tells her and she's like, you know, okay, what happened? Let's sort it out. If you, do you need to get help, you know, if you need to get help, okay, let's find you help, you know, and, and start, start having that conversation in the, early on in the relationship so that he feels, because um, there is a lot of shame around this, right? And um, he's going to be ashamed of his behaviors, but especially with Christians, because there's a, it's a sin, there's the moral part of it, you know, and um, the last thing that guys want to do when they are ashamed is to um, be open, right? Because right. they want to deflect, they want to deflect away from the shame. Uh, if you're a guy listening to this and you're in a relationship, the reason you're hiding your porn use from your partner, there's two reasons. One, you are ashamed and embarrassed, but two, you have believed the lie that what she doesn't know won't hurt her. And that is wrong. Stop telling yourself that. You're really just protecting yourself. What you're really saying is, if I tell her, then she'll be angry and then I won't like that. So you're really protecting yourself from the discomfort of her emotions because of your behavior. Yeah. Final question. Okay. Um, wrapping up is I wanted to ask you about uh, betrayal trauma. Yeah. Because I've talked to a lot of, uh, of female friends who have undergone that as well. And this ties directly into what you just said, what she doesn't know won't hurt her. But uh, a lot of guys, um, I, I feel like, have, have created these silos in their brain where there's their real human relationships and then there's the world that they live in porn. Yeah. And they don't connect the two. I remember talking to one guy who genuinely was bewildered by how hurt his wife was by this. And it almost tanked his marriage. But he was yeah. actually shocked that this yeah. was such a big deal. Yeah. So maybe explain what the impact on spouses is, what betrayal trauma actually is, and why this is such a big deal. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. And, and it, that's a nice segue from, from what we were just talking about. Um, so uh, in the therapy community, uh, 30, 40 years ago, we used to think that if you were married to an addict, you were a co-addict, right? And you enabled the behavior. So, so if you were married to an alcoholic and uh, you, know, you picked up after him, put him to bed, cleaned up the bottles, called him to work for him, you were a co-addict. That doesn't work with sex addiction, okay? And the better way to look at the impact on partners is a trauma model. And so when I talk to, and th this is borne out in my practice, when I talk to partners, Jonathan, of porn addicts and sex addicts, they meet the criteria for PTSD, literally, okay? Extreme anxiety, depression, unregulated emotion, flashbacks, hypervigilance, hyperarousal, okay? And it's because the lying and the deception has shattered their reality to such a degree that they're completely emotionally turned upside down. And you said it, Jonathan, men live in compartments. I was just telling this to a client this morning for a call. I said, you have to understand the difference, and I'm generalizing, okay? but. Basically, in the internal world of men, we have sex with our partner, porn, different box, hockey, beer, cigars, work, career, friends, axe throwing, 
uh, playing guitar. So all compartments, right? And most of those don't connect. Women have one big compartment. It's called relationships and emotions, okay? So you don't get to take your little isolated silo of my secret porn habit and drop that into the middle of her world and not expect her to be emotionally um, turned upside down. It's going to be extremely, uh, it's going to be extremely traumatic, actually. And, and of course, it depends on the degree. Like there's porn, and, and I don't want to say just porn. I almost said it, but I don't want to say that. But there's porn and escalates all the way to, you know, I've seen, I've had clients, I've had 60 sexual partners over 20 years of their marriage. And they, they literally have to send me spreadsheets of all their sexual encounters because there's so many of them. And it's literally laid out in chronological order. So those are kind of the two extremes that I deal with, right? But what's, what's happened is when your partner finds out that you've kept a secret and lied, and I mean mostly a lie of omission. So you not telling her is a lie of omission. This creates two things in her mind psychologically. One, if you lied about that, what else are you lying about? And two, when you do tell her the truth, she still doesn't believe you because she's asked you that question before and you told her a lie and she believed you and she's never going to be made to feel that stupid again. Right? So, um, yeah, what will happen with a lot of partners is um, they become hypervigilant, meaning all it takes is for them to walk in the room and see you on a computer and their heart rate goes right up. The anxiety just flies up through the roof. They're, they're, they're really upset and anxious and because hyper vigilant means you see danger where there isn't danger. So they walk in the room and you're just on your phone checking the weather, but you must be chatting with that woman. And it's like, boom, the bomb goes off. And that's the hyper arousal. So those are the two pieces of that hypervigilance and the hyperarousal. So a lot of work I do with partners is helping, helping her understand that what's going on in her own body and her own mind and helping him to help uh, like respond to that appropriately. Because what guys often do is get angry and defensive. And then that just escalates it and makes it worse when they need to just validate her pain and take ownership for their behavior. So, but there's, there's, you're, you're right. There's a total disconnect between my behaviors and the emotional impact that this will have on my partner. And because we say, well, what she'll never find out, then that, that's it. Like we never go any further than that. She'll never find out, so we're good. And we have no plan for when she does find out. Inevitably. Inevitably, and they always do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, women have the most amazing intuition and uh, sense for things that it's really incredible. I hear, I hear about it all the time. He'll walk in the, you know, he was watching porn on his, in his car on the way home and he walks in the door and the second he walks in the door, she takes one look at his face and says, what have you been doing? <laughs> Which is a combination of men externalizing guilt and women's intuition. Is it okay? Yeah. I, maybe he looks really guilty. I don't know. I'm not there, but I hear lots of stories about that, right? Well, Paul, thanks so much for taking time to talk about all this really awkward stuff. Uh, is there a website you can uh, direct people to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just go to Turning Point for Me. So, Turning Point, the number four, me.com. 
uh, or email me at turningpointforme at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, any questions or feedback or if you're struggling, if you're a partner or someone struggling with porn, um, I'm very happy to help you out and work with you. Please reach out and, um, you know, I'll get back to you and we can have a, we can have a chat. And thanks so much, Jonathan, for having me on and being willing to, to address this issue. It's, it's really important. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Paul Laverne on Porn Addiction. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out past shows, we've got a lot of past shows on pornography, especially I do want to encourage you, if you have kids, to check out our interview with Kristen Jensen of Protect Young Minds on how to talk to your kids about porn. Go to the lifesitenews.com, click on the podcast tab, and you can check out our podcast there. You can subscribe on YouTube or any of the podcast catchers where you get your content. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We really do appreciate your time, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.